0: tonight 2022 we take a break from our daily update on ukraine to look more in depth at how ukraine's security is inextricably linked to the united states and why russia's official stance on demilitarizing ukraine is a non-starter this is sitting duck part two
1: good evening and merry christmas to all americans across our great country During these last few months, you and I have witnessed one of the greatest dramas of the 20th century, the historic and revolutionary transformation of a totalitarian dictatorship, the Soviet Union, and the liberation of its peoples. As we celebrate Christmas, this day of peace and hope, I thought we should take just a few minutes to reflect on what these events mean for us as Americans.
0: Thanks, George, but we're mostly going to focus on Ukraine. On December 8, 1991, 69 years after Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine signed the 1922 Union Treaty that created the United Soviet Socialist Republic, the USSR, the leaders of those nations secretly met in Belarus and signed the Belavesa Accords. Those original founding nations declared that the USSR no longer existed, it was dead. Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine were separate and sovereign nations. The preamble to the Belavasia Accord states, The USSR, as a subject of international law and a geopolitical reality, is ceasing its existence. We think that's what it says. Actually, the original document is gone. Belarus lost one of the most important documents of the 20th century. Now, a week before those three nations signed that document, on December 1st, 1991, Ukraine held a national referendum with a simple question, Quote, do you support the Act of Declaration of Independence of Ukraine? End quote. The text of Ukraine's Act of Independence was drafted earlier in the year, in the middle of the night, between August 23rd and 24th. Other than the American founding fathers purportedly drafting the Declaration of Independence, who in the hell secedes from another nation in the dead of night? probably people who feel that the world is crumbling around them. Just a few days earlier, August 19th to 21st, a group of eight high-level Soviet officials, the vice president, the premier, the interior minister, the defense minister and marshal of the Soviet Union, the chairman of the KGB, the first deputy chairman of the Defense Council, chairman of the Peasants Union of the USSR, and the president of the Association of State Enterprises they all got together and they attempted to coup the Soviet government and overthrow then President Mikhail Gorbachev. The coup lasted two days, with Gorbachev returning to Moscow at 2 a.m. on August 22nd. And during that two day coup, it seemed the USSR was either on the path to complete dissolution and collapse, or it was about to cast itself into the past, undoing Gorbachev's move toward reform. That's the perestroika period. That was the adoption of free market principles, liberal economics to make the USSR's brand of socialism more efficient. It would introduce things like collective ownership of service and manufacturing and foreign trade businesses. Perestroika started in 1985 and lasted all the way up until the fall of the Soviet Union. Westernization didn't really work in the USSR by 1990. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Armenia had all declared their independence from the Soviet Union, and in June of 91, Russia itself had declared its own sovereignty in an attempt to establish a democratic state that would expand the rights of autonomous territories under Russia. And those eight high-level officials saw those reforms, and possibly sovereign status itself, as dangerous to the USSR. In reality, though, not much changed through perestroika. The economy gained no momentum, no price controls were lifted, and the government still owned most of the means of production it was still a socialist republic if perestroika wasn't working as promised if gorbachev's own cabinet thought he was destroying the soviet union then what would happen to the other soviet states or at least what was left of them well During the coup attempt, those other Soviet states were forced to answer for themselves. Latvia officially confirmed its independence by law on August 21st, the day Gorbachev returned to office. On August 24th, Ukraine's parliament adopted the Act of Independence and called for a referendum, which then took place in December. On August 25th, Belarus made its Declaration of Sovereignty law. August 27th, Moldova declared independence. Azerbaijan and Kyrgyzstan followed suit on August 30th and 31st. Estonia Latvia re-declared independence on the 20th and 21st of August. And I think you get the idea. By November of 1990, the USSR consisted solely of Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. So back to that December 1st, 1991 referendum. Quote, Do you support the of declaration of independence of Ukraine? of voters said yes, they did support that, and it was good. For all of Ukraine's turmoil in the first half of the 20th century, revolution, famine, and starvation, civil war, utter chaos, according to most historians, through its complicated incorporation into the USSR, you see, it was part of the USSR, but it was also represented independently at the United Nations. Anyway, that referendum in 1991 seemed to be a declaration a promise, a hope, of future growth and stability and sovereignty. The promises of the West were still alive. Now physically, Ukraine is an imposing country, it's the largest in Europe. It had the fifth largest population in Europe. It was sovereign then, and technically open to foreign markets. Democracy and prosperity seemed inevitable. The reality is that Ukraine struggled, more so than any other former Soviet republic. It was one of the poorest Soviet republics, and after independence, its economy only shrank for half a decade. Its sovereign currency, the hryvnia, was introduced in 1996. It replaced the karbovanets, but failed to perform due to hyperinflation, which was the very thing that the sovereign currency was actually meant to protect against. Now, if you haven't listened to the Unfuck the Poor podcast the first season, you might be wondering why, on a podcast about the war in Ukraine, why in the fuck am I talking about Ukraine's currency? Well, just trust me on this. Since declaring its independence in 1991 through 1998, Ukraine's gross domestic product, GDP, declined by 62.1%. The GDP is the sum total value of all finished market goods in the period of a year. Post-Soviet Ukraine had low production. It was low in manufacturing. The industry tanked and raw material extraction tanked. Prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, in fact, for the duration of Gorbachev's perestroika, all of the USSR had actually been in similar decline as far as productivity goes. But all those former Soviet states had one thing in common, Russia, on which they had all relied for policy and certain necessities like gas and oil. Without the economic protection of the USSR, the former Soviet states were all essentially on their own because they were sovereign, and Ukraine struggled. When inflation rises, prices go up. Up and up, with little to no change in income, it makes it increasingly difficult to both sell goods, you know, because they're at inflated prices, and it's also difficult to make enough money to purchase those goods, because your money doesn't go very far. When you have a currency you can't use, governments become unstable, employment drops, poverty rises. Usually, markets tank, but Ukraine's market was never really in a place for it to tank. It was just starting at zero and struggling. Enter the shadow market. Much like we see Ukrainians today volunteering to pick up rifles, fill sandbags, and make Molotov cocktails, Ukrainians, individuals, and businesses simply made their own economic system. They began to work around Ukraine's weak economy, the use of non-marketable bills for exchange rose. Now, Those are basically IOUs, seriously. And those bills are exchangeable, meaning you can hand them off like money. And you don't need a bank for them. And instead of traditional bank loans, Ukrainian businesses received de facto or pseudo loans by simply paying bills late or never paying them. It was so pervasive, meaning that it was basically how all business was done, that products and services were traded on a completely fictional credit system. Work was done, products were made, products got moved, they exchanged hands, and payments got paid when they could be. Maybe. People exchanged IOUs, and this is the shadow system, the shadow market. It's the workaround that ran up huge backlogs of unpaid bills. Essentially, these wound up being business-to-business loans, and that managed to keep the value of supply and the value of demand in check. In other words, it began to actually take control of hyperinflation, if you can believe it. So it was this slow buildup that led to the huge economic growth from 2000 to 2008. After a decade of slowly building on this impromptu credit system, production began to take off. All the sectors that had collapsed in the 90s began churning faster, exports rose, and because Ukraine had high interest rates, foreign investments poured in. In 2007, the World Bank reported, quote, Ukraine recorded one of the sharpest declines in poverty of any transition economy in recent years. The poverty rate fell from a high of 32% in 2001 to 8% in 2005, quote. Great. They did it. They really did it. They managed to succeed through that tried and true advice offered by most idiots. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Ugh. Did they have steady influxes of American aid dollars? They did. But it did little to help inflation. Again, productivity, the actual output of stuff, was low. Money influxes didn't fix that. There's a whole other podcast series we could do on corruption in Ukraine, but that is wholly irrelevant here. The key takeaway here is that Ukraine managed to make it work from the bottom of the heap. Resilience, grit, determination, survival, however you want to look at it, from 32% poverty to 8%. Ukraine did that. So let's go back to the 1990s, because while Ukraine was struggling to get its economy going, it was also wholly focused on its sovereignty and its future identity. From the very beginning, July 1990, Ukraine penned its Declaration of Sovereignty, not its act of independence, mind you. But that Declaration of Sovereignty made clear that Ukraine never had any intention of being a nuclear state, first and foremost. Not only was a non-nuclear nation their goal, they also wanted to be, you know, part of Europe. And that meant they would have to perform on the international stage. Now, the US and Russia were well-versed in international politics. They did it all the time. But all those little new sovereign nations that came about, they kind of had to figure it out on their own. And Ukraine had a lot to learn. And when Ukraine officially became independent of Russia, all of a sudden, the United States had to pay attention to them. Why? Because they had the fucking nukes, man. But seriously, they did, and George Bush Sr. kind of fucked that up.
1: President Gorbachev has achieved astonishing things, and his policies of glasnost and perestroika and democratization point toward the goals of freedom, democracy, and economic liberty. And yet freedom is not the same as independence. Americans will not support those who seek independence in order to replace a far-off tyranny with a local despotism. They will not aid those who promote a suicidal nationalism based upon ethnic hatred. For years, you had elections with, with ballots, but you did not enjoy democracy, and now Democracy has begun to set firm roots in Soviet soil. So,
0: George Bush gave that speech to the Ukrainian parliament, oh, two months before the Soviet Union collapsed. Poor timing. Not only was this speech um, condescending and poorly timed and um, incorrect, this speech, infamously known as the Chicken Kiev Speech, and written by Condoleezza Rice, no less, was incredibly poorly timed i mean yeah two months later the soviet union collapsed and ukraine declared independence but it also made the next year difficult for bush because this speech sucked so bad the ukraine and the u.s did not start things off great and the u.s didn't really understand what was going on with ukraine but they did know that with ukraine came the question of nuclear weapons the u.s did not want a bunch of suddenly independent republics with nuclear capabilities bush and his administration didn't recognize ukraine's independence until ukraine voted for it and then then members of the bush cabinet brought up the notion that even with that vote maybe they shouldn't recognize ukraine's independence unless they got rid of their nuclear weapons so they negotiate Ukraine doesn't want nuclear weapons it's public knowledge they wrote it down so why didn't they just you know hand them over because Ukraine proved to be especially savvy negotiators especially considering they had never done it before they picked up quickly how these things work Ukraine didn't want the weapons but Ukraine made it a point to include in the denuclearization deal that they were indeed Ukraine's weapons Ukraine's goal was twofold. They wanted better relations with Russia, that is, security from Russia, and they wanted appropriate compensation for the highly enriched uranium in the nuclear warheads. Money. They wanted money, and they needed it, because they didn't have any. In order to get rid of the nuclear weapons left over by Russia and Ukraine, it must first be established that they are Ukraines to get rid of, and when that condition is met, Ukraine can sell the contents of those warheads. Russia did not like this. They were Damn it, they were Russia's. Anyway, a purchase agreement was proposed, used to prevent the sale of nuclear weapons elsewhere, and Ukraine wanted 16% of the dollar value paid to Russia for the highly enriched uranium, an agreement between Russia and Ukraine. Russia did not like this. The U.S. also didn't like this, so they were skeptical that Russia would actually pay Ukraine what they were owed if the two were to enter in this agreement. So the agreement became direct payment to Ukraine from the U.S. for the value of nuclear warheads, which meant, drumroll please, the U.S. was technically acknowledging that the nuclear weapons did, by nature of the payment agreement, belong to Ukraine. In and amid all these talks, a very interesting statement was made by Ukraine's then Minister of Environmental Protection. Quote, the last strategic missile located on Ukrainian territory should be destroyed when Ukraine's fate has been fused with that of Europe. End quote. Interesting because these themes are still at play 30 years later. While Ukraine had no intentions of becoming an independent nuclear state, a position that would make relinquishing those weapons simple, Ukraine did have intentions of being prosperous, something that felt challenging given its immediate secession from the USSR. But they were now at the center of yet another crucial moment in the 20th century. Ukraine's parliament drafted a letter in 1993 that drew a very serious line for the U.S. to cross. Ukraine would remain a nuclear state until their specific compensation requests were met. The weapons, instead of being completely useless to Ukraine, symbolized their very real needs. So what did denuclearization mean to Ukraine? Nothing, really. I mean, they couldn't use or maintain the weapons that had been left behind. Fun fact. What those weapons meant to the rest of the world, however, was security. And Ukraine understood that if it meant global security, then what of Ukraine's security? Defense security, economic security, political security, the utterly useless weapons suddenly held immense value, and Ukraine's security needs were escalating rapidly. In April of 1992, 37 officers of the administration and headquarters of the Crimean Naval Base Pledged their allegiance to Ukraine. It used to be, you know, the USSR. In July of 92, the crew of the SKR 112 raised the Ukrainian flag and declared itself a Ukrainian vessel, then set sail on a high speed ocean chase to Odessa with Russian ships trying to ram it. Yeah, seriously. Then several other ships hoisted the Ukrainian flag and followed suit. This made 1993 a hard year for Ukraine and Russia. Russia claimed it owned the city of Sevastopol and Crimea. Russia claimed Ukraine wasn't storing the nuclear warheads in safe facilities. The US never found any evidence of this. Russia announced it was determined to protect its citizens abroad. More pointedly, they meant that they were going to protect the Russians living in Ukraine, like in Crimea, which they said they owned. But they didn't own it because it had been part of Ukraine since 1954. It has been part of Ukraine since 1954. So yeah, Russia was getting pissy. Anyway. The budapest memorandum is the thing that came out of all these talks it was signed december 5th 1994 by russia the united kingdom and the united states and it provided three identical agreements to belarus kazakhstan and ukraine upon their entry into the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons that's called the non-proliferation treaty for short the acceleration of russia's well let's call it what it was at the time aggression against ukraine the acceleration of russia's aggression against ukraine made it clear to the united states that security meant protection And throughout these denuclearization talks, Ukraine was already making inroads with the US military. They were making extensive contacts. The US and NATO began working with Ukraine straight away, participating in joint exercises between 1994 and 1997. And by 1997, the US provided financial and technical support to aid in the creation of a Polish-Ukrainian battalion. And since that time, US aid money for Ukraine's military defense has been significant. They receive more money from the US than from any other nation, by far. Since the 2014 annexation of Crimea, Ukraine has received more than $3 billion in military aid, but that is not a check written and signed by the President. That's US money spent in the US on goods and services and then sent over to Ukraine. The US, NATO and Ukraine train together with the joint multinational training group Ukraine at a training center in Yavoriv near the Polish border, paid for mostly with US dollars. In an interview with Lieutenant Ben Hodges, commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, on NPR in 2019, the exercises were described, quote, as a great opportunity to learn because no Americans have ever been under Russian artillery or rocket fire or that kind of lethal environment with Russian capabilities, and so we were able to learn a lot from Ukrainian soldiers and officers, end quote. In that same NPR piece, the deputy director of the Center for Army Conversion and Disarmament Studies in Kiev called the trainings, quote, a first step. End quote. concluding that Ukraine had a long way to go before they would be able to deter a full-scale Russian attack. That was only three years ago. And arguably, Ukraine's military has not cleared that much ground over the past three years. And that leads me, albeit in a very long winded way, to the title of this episode, Sitting Duck. Let me play devil's advocate for you real quick. What more does Ukraine need from the United States if we have spent billions of dollars on supplying and training its military? If we are in unanimous agreement that harsh sanctions are necessary and that with today's announcement that a bipartisan bill to ban oil imports from Russia has actually fucking passed, what more could the U.S. possibly do? All right, done being devil's advocate. We know that Ukraine's military is not equipped to handle a full-scale Russian attack, And we also know that in spite of sanctions, Putin continues unabated. We also know that even though Zelensky's position is understandable when he asks for a no-fly zone over Ukraine, actually doing that would be suicidal for like the world. It would be an unnecessary escalation that draws the conflict out of Ukraine's borders. It is easy to get caught up in the underdog fight, we so want an unprovoked attack to be retaliated against and overcome. But Ukraine has proved itself to be adept on the world stage before, that's why I bored you with the whole history of denuclearization, they really came out on top. But Ukraine has never been able to, nor will it ever be able to after the current war, to withstand a full-scale Russian assault, it's not likely to happen in our lifetime at this point. That is, if Ukraine continues to exist. Peaceful options, options that don't result in a full-scale Russian assault, because we have not seen that yet, that would leave Ukraine totally uninhabitable. Those peaceful options do exist. The options for Ukraine are to fight. Again, that's justifiable. The options for the U.S. are to pump out more and more military aid. That's one option. That would entail a laundry list of subsequent aid, something I fear most of those hoping for a military victory don't have in their sights. That would require a major outflow of humanitarian aid, something akin to our own humanitarian corridor, to ease the pressure on Europe from the heavy stream of Ukrainians fleeing their homes, from the immense pressure of having to rebuild an entire nation. That would involve rebuilding Ukraine's infrastructure, as well as all of their homes and businesses. That would involve a total guarantee of Ukraine's security for the foreseeable future. A guarantee that the United States sidestepped in the denuclearization talks. The English document reads assurance of security, while the Ukrainian document reads guarantee of security. Now, before I go any further, let me be abundantly clear. No matter what happens in this war, the United States and Ukraine are now and always will be inextricably linked in terms of security, both in terms of defense and economics. We absolutely should lead the effort in helping to rebuild Ukraine after the war, and we should do everything in our part to make sure that Ukraine remains a nation after this war. But a second option exists. And it appears that President Zelensky sees it on the horizon, and that is the actual negotiation of neutrality, that is not joining NATO, becoming neutral, remaining neutral. Admission to the EU, that should remain on the table, Putin has nothing to lose there. Admission can take up to a decade, which Germany has signaled it has no appetite to rush. Guarantees for the safety of Ukrainians living in Crimea and the Donbas. Also a reasonable ask as far as Putin's concerned. The second option is something like the Minsk II agreement. That's the agreement that was meant to end the conflict between Ukraine and Russia and Russian backed separatists in the Donbas region of Ukraine in 2015. Minsk II failed, but not spectacularly. They failed over seven years. Chalk that up to a lack of trust due in large part to Russia's rewriting of history. Russia claimed that the Minsk II accord wasn't actually between Ukraine and Russia, but between Ukraine and the Separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. Russia claimed its role was as mediator, as in mediator between Russia and the Russian-backed separatists. Those separatists came with weapons, tanks, personnel carriers, anti-aircraft systems, and numerous weapons, all only available within Russia. They were never available in Ukraine, and in spite of evidence, Russia denies giving them any weapons. But the official story from the separatists is that all of their equipment came from inside Ukraine. It's all Ukrainian equipment. But then you have, you know, the Ukrainian army saying, no, we don't have brand new Russian tanks. That's not a thing that Ukraine has. In spite of all the evidence, Russia denies any involvement. Russia's sincerity on any matter, even the moderately rational concern over its security interests, Even that's questionable. Any agreement Ukraine may reach with Russia will be questionable. As Russia reminds us that they themselves possess nuclear weapons, surely we remember why it was so important for Ukraine to seek those security assurances from us, even with an assurance of safety, if not a guarantee. The U.S. has aligned itself with Ukraine's national security interests, now and forever our responsibility to that extends far beyond the provision of weapons and training our responsibility is to secure ukraine's long-term security to which we agreed 30 years ago if our assurances are to be taken more seriously than russia's we owe them the full diplomatic power of the united states the kind that evolved with the denuclearization deal that means de-escalation that means peace that is the second option The preferred option. But if we're gonna go with that first option, the one where the US confidently and happily supplies Ukraine with military aid, we're gonna have to step it up and fully honor that commitment because pumping in weapons and planes to a far outnumbered army still leaves Ukraine a sitting duck, albeit a duck with a bunch of javelin missiles. And that raises the issue of the non-proliferation treaty. If denuclearization was meant to make the world safer, what good could we possibly expect from an all-out war between two or more nuclear-capable countries? That's the third option, the nuclear option. Peace has to win out. That does it for today's history lesson. We're going to return immediately with your daily updates on the war in Ukraine.